Welcome back, everyone. I've got um, quite a sheaf of questions here, which are, without exception, very, very interesting. And it's going to be impossible to get through all of them. I'll do my best. Some of them cover the same territory. Charitably try to assume that if your question isn't answered, I've, I've addressed it sideways and trying to answer another one. But um, the simplest question to answer is whether uh, the text will be available. Uh, and the answer is yes. Um, it'll be on my website. And I gather there's some possibility that um, the university might like to publish it, so it will be available for uh, further discussion. And indeed, as somebody said, for the use in notes to MA dissertations. <laughs> Now, some of the questions are fairly directly connected with um, the substance of the lecture. Some of them are more general. So with your permission, I'll start by taking some of the more specific ones. And I'll begin with two very, very specific ones. If Bell were alive today, what do you think his reaction would have been to the selection of a German as Pope? And would it have been a good thing had George Bell become Archbishop? I think Bell would have been rather delighted by the election of a German pope. I think it would have vindicated his very clear sense that Germany was not a monolithic lump of evil in the European heartland, that Germany was a mixed, a complex society in which people struggled to find ways of living with integrity as everywhere else. He consistently refused to demonise Germany overall. And I think he would have been very interested in the present Pope's European vision and sense. I think they'd have had a lot to talk to each other about. And would it have been a good thing had Bell become Archbishop? Opinions divided, but actually I still think it would myself. I still think it would. I think that Bell would have been far less... Um, competent an administrator than Geoffrey Fisher and we would have had to wait a little bit longer for the revision of the Church of England's canon law which was Geoffrey Fisher's great enterprise but I suspect that that might not have been absolutely the first priority in terms of, in terms of the kingdom of God during the late 40s and 50s but who knows but uh, yes I, I rather think so but then that's partly because Donald McKinnon whom I quoted earlier was one of my teachers, and I believed most of what Donald said, and he certainly thought that. <laughs> now, some um, questions around the subject matter of the lecture. One very interesting question here about how the church avoids getting drawn into ideological propaganda. You know, the more the church engages in the issues of the day, isn't there a risk that the church may find itself voicing the propaganda, the interest of some section, some uh, issue group. I think the only answer to that is that the church needs constantly to, this is embarrassingly simple, uh, to pray, to be faithful to what makes it distinctive, constantly to be reflecting on itself and its own integrity in terms of its foundation documents and its basic practices. I think a church whose unity and focus is simply on ideals, especially ideals of you know, justice and progress and so forth, that's fine. But if they're not rooted in the distinctiveness, what I call the strangeness 
of Revelation. I think it all dries up, actually, and the church does become easily just another voice in an ideological debate. And as the questioner notes, there have been some rather unpleasant examples of that in the 20th century, and as Bell knew very well indeed, the church could be very effectively conscripted into the service of the ideology of Nazism. How in today's church may we continue to maintain the dialogue about Niebuhr's insights with regard to Christ above culture, within culture, against culture, and beyond culture? <clears throat> For those who don't know um, Randall Niebuhr's great book on Christ and culture, those are the categories that this very distinguished German-American theologian proposes for understanding the relations between Christ and culture. The church can work from within, it can work against, it can have a sort of oppositional minority stance, it can seek to penetrate the structures of its society. And as chance would have it, I've just been reading a very interesting American book <clears throat> which questions the whole basis on which Niebuhr's analysis works and says that it's too artificial and it's also rather slanted towards Niebuhr's own preferred conclusions, unsurprisingly. So I think to continue that dialogue, we probably need to step back a bit from too many generalizations about it and say it's not so much about Christ and culture, <clears throat> it's about the community of Christ in its distinctiveness, its worshipping practice and its study of the Bible, its Eucharist, its baptism. The church is that kind of community relating to a variety of cultural institutions. No such thing as culture in general, but cultures. With the question always in the church's mind, how does our engagement with this particular context, this kind of politics, this kind of art, how does our engagement with that advance the kingdom of God in some ways? How do we, in our encounter with whatever our society throws at us, seek to set forward that kind of humanity which God wills as his purpose for us all? There's a note here about <clears throat> how representations of religion are still a significant part of what you might call the heritage business. Is that a valuable commodity or potentially damaging? The answer, I think, is both. Um, you can end up with the impression that religion is one of those quaint things that people used to do. Um, and you can, as frequently happens, I think, in fiction and drama these days, you can paint amazingly unreal pictures of religious practice and language in other ages because you've no, you've no sense of how it really worked. Um, Yes, I, I could give some examples, and perhaps it would be invidious to mention any one instance, but, um, <laughs> but <clears throat> that astonishing television series on the Tudors, so-called, recently, <laughs> is, I think, a very marked example of, you know, a, a kind of breathtaking illiteracy about the past. The past becomes 21st century soap opera in fancy dress. <laughs> and religion goes with it. You, you know you've got to have it there because, I mean, there were archbishops in the 16th century, weren't there? So you've got to have them around. But how they worked, what they thought, what they felt, what it was like, no interest at all. So I'm wary about the heritage industry and the presence of a kind of soft focus and rather inaccurate version of religion within that. On the other hand, anything that does remind us that once there were archbishops of Canterbury, and where have they all gone? It's not a... <laughs> 
It's not a bad question just to start a conversation going in the 21st century. So there are opportunities there. And I think what we've discovered in the last, I don't know, probably even the last 10 years is that the presence, the impact of churches and cathedrals within the heritage world, within tourism and so forth, isn't necessarily trivial. People find that this is a place where, to quote something I've quoted far too many times in the last few years, said to me by a friend of mine, that these are places where you can put the bits of your humanity that won't go anywhere else. And the dean in his sermon last night in the cathedral, I think, said some very powerful things about that as it plays out in, in Chichester Cathedral. Where do people go with certain sorts of experience, certain sorts of crisis? And the presence of Christian images and Christian places in the heritage world is just a reminder that there is somewhere where these things can be taken. And that's, as I say, not trivial. A question about um, <clears throat> the way in which, if you like, general thinkers tend to get marginalised in our society and what happens about... Uh, leading academics at the heart of our society and so on. I wouldn't necessarily consign the government of this country to academics with due respect to the institution I'm speaking in and to my own past. But I do worry occasionally that while the appetite in many quarters for serious debate about what matters for human beings is there, we're pushing uphill rather against a very short-term mentality, a very quick-fix mentality, and a mentality that really doesn't much like the reality of continuing debate. It's as if people want to say, well, you know, that's it, now we move on. So insofar as the church is part of what the great Raymond Williams called the long revolution of keeping the thinking going critically, then the church's voice is not going to be all that popular or welcome in, in that environment, and we just have a hard job. I don't think anything I say is going to make that easier. But it's related to a number of other questions about what's happening at the moment. Um, how does the established church respond to the prophetic voice in present-day secular society? A question about what ethical guidance can be credibly given. I notice credibly inserted very firmly there. Credibly given to the financial community at the moment and some related things. Um, on the economic crisis at the moment, I think the church has got to be necessarily modest about offering specific solutions. And a couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege of having dinner with a, a very significant and um, sophisticated financial journalist who said he had 12 points that he was recommending the government to adopt to solve the financial crisis. And I thought, well, I'm glad somebody has, but actually that's not the church's job. <laughs> and 12 points arriving from Lambeth Palace on the Chancellor's <laughs> desk to solve the financial crisis would quite rightly, I think, be written off. But the church, I think, can keep needling at some of the fundamental attitude questions. Just how did we get here? Just how did we get to a situation in which the, what I called myself a couple of weeks ago, the, the unreality of a lot of our financial life simply spirals out of control? How do we get to a situation where we no longer ask some basic questions about trust? Now, that doesn't 
provide the instant answer to the specific critical question. It does say everyone involved in this, which includes all of us as investors as well, everyone needs some scrutiny of themselves. And in so many contexts, what the church most importantly has to say is look at yourself, look at yourself, and take the time that needs. And responding to the prophetic voice, the catch about prophecy is that on the whole you don't know that this is prophecy at the moment. Somebody gets up in the middle of the social situation and says, the judgment of God on this society is X, Y, and Z. Now, do you believe them? Well, you may or may, you may not. And later on, you may find that they were right and you were wrong and you made a complete fool of yourself. You may, of course, hitch your wagon to it and say this is right and feel a complete fool the other way around. And that's prophecy, even in the Old Testament. It's quite clear that when prophets get up and speak, it's very seldom the case that everybody then says, how true. The only case of that recorded in the Old Testament, the only case, is in the book of Jonah. Jonah walks into the middle of Nineveh and says, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed, repent. And the Ninevites say with one voice, oh, all right then. <laughs> Which is why, a little known fact, Jonah is the comic masterpiece of the Old Testament, a very, very deliberate fantasy on prophetic themes, meant to remind us that sometimes the people who are absolutely outside the covenant, the complete psychotic bastards who inhabit Nineveh, are more likely to respond to the word of God than some of the people who ought to. <laughs> that's, that's why it's funny. But you know, prophecy on the whole doesn't work like that. And that's why discernment is so hard and so protracted a job, trying to listen into the heart of what's said, to find, to find God in it or not, knowing the risk of it and knowing that either a yes or a no can be very problematic in the long run. So again, a long task. But when you hear a voice which is prophetic in the sense of being very fundamentally critical of you, of the society, of the church, the first question is not to say, how do I get this tiresome person out of sight and out of sound? It's to say, is God saying something to me that I have got to hear for my health? First question, just start there. See what follows. Talk to your friends. Pray. And sort of apropos, really, somebody asks a question about Philip Pullman's work. Is that an important contemporary expression of what Bell meant by public seriousness? Absolutely, I think. Absolutely. I think Philip Pullman is um, globally and dramatically wrong about God and the universe. And on his way to that global wrongness, he says so many things that are so interesting, so engaging, so challenging, that it would be a fool who would write him off as just another atheist. Work through. See what it is he's understood and what he hasn't understood about Christianity. Just let your mind be enlarged by the beautiful, imaginative world he takes you into. But don't lose your head either. <laughs> Keep asking the, the questions. And Pullman is just one example of, I think, a number of writers of very different kinds who, by portraying a very, um, very different world from that that Christians usually inhabit, has the capacity to enlarge and deepen. 
I think of you know, professedly very anti-religious writers. Ian McEwan is an example I sometimes use. When you've read an Ian McEwan novel, again, you may think that's not quite the world I inhabit, but I'm grateful for having been taken there. And there's something more that emerges at the end of it all. And I think that's how we constantly ought to be approaching the arts. If Bill were alive today, I was waiting for that question, <laughs> what issues would he be pursuing? I think on the basis of what we know of him, he would have been profoundly concerned about how we treat asylum seekers, detainees in this country. He would have known, I think, as we all know, that it's not a simple question to sort it out. He would have known also that there are some aspects of that system, especially as it affects children and young people, that are intolerable. I think he would have focused quite a bit on that. I ask myself where he would have been on the question of um, the Iraq war. And I don't know that I'm sure of the answer. Bell wasn't a pacifist. He believed that sometimes force was a necessary evil in international affairs. And he believed, actually, the Second World War was a just war. But precisely for that reason, of course, he believed that taking it forward unjustly undermined your own initial case. And he might have said, I think, faced with a question about that, well, let's see how it was actually prosecuted, the war in Iraq. Let's just see what the scale of civilian casualty was and how far it could be um, explained away. And I'm not sure he'd have come to a terribly positive conclusion about that, but as I say, it's an open question to me. How does the church present a coherent voice when individual bishops and priests say such different things? <laughs> Next question. <laughs> well, the church, because its leaders are fallible and sinful men and occasionally women, just like everybody else, it's actually rather unusual for the church to speak with one voice in certain matters. Sometimes, when bishops are in conflict over what seem to be rather major or fundamental matters, it can be an embarrassment. But it's the kind of embarrassment that can only be avoided if you only have one voice for the church. And I think not even the most orthodox Roman Catholic would believe you ought to have just one voice for the church. So it's a risk that you run. The discernment always has to be testing what any bishop or anyone else says in the light of that bishop's place in the whole scheme of Christian tradition and understanding. Not just how I feel or how the vicar feels or how my best friend feels or the fact that I don't like, um, I don't like the bishop's face on television or whatever. Just put what's being said into that wider context. Test it with other Christians. Work at it. I'm sorry, so many of the answers seem to be about taking your time and working hard. And Well, welcome to reality. <laughs> That's how it is so often. Um, how can the church um, manage its task of serving and reshaping culture, given the violence and immorality in populist drama, without the church being denounced for liberalism or dismissed as a modern-day Mary Whitehouse? Well, how indeed... Um, for anybody in the public life of the church, and I'm sure the bishop will confirm this, there is a level at which you just have to admit 
you're going to look stupid quite a lot of the time because in our world of celebrity and saturation communication, part of the interest of all that keeps that going is to make public figures look silly a lot of the time. Sometimes they are silly, sometimes they're not so silly. And naturally, of course, I think I'm, I'm never silly. Um, <clears throat> but it's, it's one of the prices that is paid. And it's quite important, therefore, to realise that, coming back to the very end of my lecture, the place where the difference is made may not be the House of Lords, but it may not be the editorial conference of a newspaper either. The differences are still made by the face-to-face -face relations of people, by a bishop or a church leader actually being there with their people, actually communicating directly, and that that remarkably does survive a good deal of media distortion. The church is fundamentally committed to the face-to-face, -face, which is its weakness and its strength. In a media-obsessed culture, it can feel like a weakness. In the long term, it's a strength. It means that the vision and the priorities, the sense of value in the church, moves not just according to fashion, what people tell you to think, but steadily through the relations of actual human beings worshipping together, thinking together, listening together. So I don't worry too much about that. Um, there are a good few more I'd love to, to tackle, but I think I ought to move on to a couple of the more general ones. Perhaps, yes, just two others here. Um, one is about Bell and the visual arts which is a very good question. Um, I read Professor Christopher Frayling's lecture on, on this a little while ago, and that, that was a spectacularly interesting account of Bell's work with the visual arts. I think, again, his taste was often conservative, but he encouraged risk. And I think the, the role of Walter Hussey here, really under Bell's encouragement and patronage, is part of a very interesting, a very good story about the church and the arts. Um, someone is hovering, I see. <laughs> so a couple of quick answers to the general questions. Do I agree with Thomas Carlyle that wonder is the basis of worship? If so, do atheists lack a sense of wonder and thus imagination? I do agree with Thomas Carlyle on, on this at least. And one of the interesting things, of course, is that a, an atheist like Philip Pullman quite clearly can evoke a sense of wonder and deliver an imaginative world of huge richness. It's connecting that wonder, I think, to, well, to love. That's the particular Christian extra. Not just that I wonder at the glory and splendor and mystery of the world, but that that wonder leads me into the sense of being the recipient of loving gift, and being that gift being drawn out of myself in a relationship. That's where... Worship is not only wonder, though it can't happen without it, and where the atheist who has a great sense of wonder may still be losing out on something. And uh, questions about public seriousness. Is it possible? And is it possible when the strangeness is factored in? Well, I don't know, but I think that it's worth working for. I said at the beginning of the lecture that Bell 
had been described as someone whose many of whose commitments didn't succeed. But even if he'd known that they weren't going to succeed, he'd still have got on with them. Public seriousness is something that's worth fighting for, whether or not we manage to deliver it. And uh, the very last two questions, I think. Um, one is a nice, specific one from someone writing a PhD on the future of the church in Southampton. What compelling aspiration would I hope that the deanery should achieve over the next five to ten years? That's um, an invitation to generalise entirely out of my experience, so I'll do it, um, <laughs> and simply say that the aspiration of any deanery or any local church ought to be twofold. It ought to be constantly reshaping itself as a learning church, a church that believes it's possible to grow into the understanding of God, and it ought to be a church that's seeking always to be credible, to have integrity and plausibility in the eyes of its neighbours through what it does with them and for them. Why do I believe in Christianity, not any other religion? Have I ever had times of not believing in God? Ask a couple of people. I don't think I've ever had a time of not believing in God. As I said, um, I think it was in an interview recently, there have been times when I'm not at all sure what I've been believing in when I've been believing in God, and I can't see my way at all clearly. But I've never felt the bottom's completely dropped out of that. But why Christianity, not any other religion? It's not as if one ever comes to religions as a, a shelf full of products, saying, well, I'll have that one. Um, but why do I stick to it, having been brought up in it? Because I believe that Christianity, in its commitment to the absolute centrality of relation within God and gift, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bestowing life into each other eternally, that is an absolutely unique, revolutionary insight, which transforms how we see personal reality, being itself, and the possibilities for this world. I don't think any other faith has that vision at the heart of it, and that's the vision I want to give my allegiance to. I could go on, but let's, let's leave it there. Thank you. Thank you so much, Archbishop Rowan. Dostoevsky, in his last novel, Brothers Karamazov, in the epilogue, wrote these words. You must realise that there is nothing better, nothing more powerful, more healthy, more useful for the life that lies ahead than a positive memory. People tell you a great deal about your education, but just such a beautiful and sacred memory as this is, is perhaps the very best education. And you have today, Archbishop, given us not only a piece of education, but also an enduring, sacred and beautiful memory. Thank you very much. May I present you with a book of George Bell's poems which has just been produced, just published by the university as a memento of this day.
Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to uh, inform you that um, there is an exhibition at the House of Lords um, for the 50th anniversary of Bishop Bell. Um, It's in the Queen's Robing Room from the 2nd to the 24th of October. So if you're able to get to London, I think you will find, particularly after the Archbishop's wonderful lecture, um, this is a particularly interesting uh, exhibition. I'd also like to say that the next distinguished lecture, um, which is our contribution in part to the intellectual life of this city, um, will be by uh, David Willits, MP, who will be speaking on the rather uh, engaging topic of um, what makes us cooperate. So come along and find out. Thank you very much. Thank you so much.